I'm Trent England with Save Our States. This is another episode of our Six Questions podcast, and I'm really glad to be joined by investigative reporter, former congressional candidate, Matthew Foley. Matt, good morning. Hey, great to be with you guys. You know, with uh, with Biden inflation, I thought, you know, we'd actually have seven questions, but, uh, you know, we can keep it to six. It's no problem with me. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, if he sticks around too long, we'll be down at like three or four questions. Oh, well, um, yeah, that too. So, so let's, uh, let's jump right into it. You're, you know, you're a, you're a young guy, you're, you're in your twenties. You've already had a great career in journalism, politics. You were the youngest elected official in Chicago. Where did all that interest come from? I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of folks who watch this who think, you know, we need more young people in politics. Well, like you are one of the answers to that. Like, how, how did that happen? Well, I mean, I, I am a huge nerd. Um, you know, I, I think back, I already was getting very involved in politics here in Maryland back in high school. And uh, I was sort of the only person really in the Montgomery County, Maryland, where I'm from, our, our county party. I was always, you know, the youngest person in any room that we were doing, whether it would be door knocking, phone banking, events, whatever. I'd be the youngest person there by, you know, a, a, a healthy margin. And, uh, Unfortunately, that was true statewide as well. So I I kept getting all of these Young Republican of the Year awards in my county here and statewide, not necessarily because of how great I am, but unfortunately, because there wasn't that much competition. So I totally agree. We, we need way more young people in politics here in Maryland and across the country. But I think the reason why I thought it was important was I don't I don't think there was a particular moment, but I realized that, you know, if you want to change your country, this really is the best way to do that and the best way to get involved and, you know, volunteer and do things like that. So, you know, going back to my high school yearbook, you know, there are no scandals in it, like, uh, you know, not no like Ralph Northam level interesting things. But my senior year in my senior year, I was voted most patriotic, which I appreciated. Um, and uh, my senior year quote was a quote from Pericles, which was, just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. So I think that's kind of an animating philosophy for me is if we're not, you know, if I'm annoyed about something, you know, I can complain all the time or I can try and actually fix it myself. Yeah. And, and you, you ran for Congress, Maryland's uh, sixth congressional district in 2022. Right. And had a lot of support from elected Republicans all around the country. Uh, what what was that experience like? I mean, running for Congress is a big deal. So, uh, you know, on the other hand, Maryland's a, a tough place. So what, what was that like? So this part of Maryland is way more Republican than most of the rest of the state. And also than the people think of Maryland in general are now, unfortunately, former governor Larry Hogan won the district that I ran in by almost 40% in 2018, which was obviously a huge blue wave around the country. So this is an area that we can and should be competitive in. And the reason I got in was because I am involved still, obviously, in Maryland Republican politics. And I had the sense that we didn't really have anyone credibly running. Um, So I actually waited until the last day to file because I assumed there would be more people. There were some other complicated factors, including redistricting and having no real knowledge of what the districts would look like and things like that, that to me led me to believe that someone else would be, you know, ready and waiting in the wings. But then when I realized there was no one waiting in the wings, I got in. It was only my campaign was only about 
hundred days, but I came in second out of six. This wasn't, you know, second mm-hmm. out of two, uh, even though the rest of the field had been running for Congress for about uh, 11 years, I think between them. Um, I still ended up coming in second. I think if I had been in for longer, we sort of realized this. If I had been in longer, the trend lines were going entirely in my direction, but unfortunately it just wasn't enough time. But, uh, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, got people to pay attention to my race was the national support and endorsements. And we had everyone from now speaker, Kevin McCarthy to Mike Pompeo and, you know, a ton of national Republican leaders, but also a ton of local endorsements that when we would tell people covering the race, Hey, it's not just that we have every Republican, you know, in Congress endorsing me. It's here are all of the central committee members who have endorsed me. Do you want to talk to this mayor who's endorsed me? Do you want to talk to, you know, the three former Maryland Republican party chairs who've endorsed me, the county GOP chairs who've endorsed me, et cetera, et cetera. None of that was interesting. It wasn't, you know, the, the narrative was supposed to be that I was like some national thing. And I think people don't necessarily realize that I'm from and grew up in Montgomery County, which is the Southern part of the district. Now for those people interested in running for office, it's, it's a crazy experience. You know, it's a, a marathon that I was sprinting at times or just marching in parades, but I think it's uh, a, a great way if you care about your country to get involved is to do it yourself. However, there are a ton of ways that you can get involved in your party, your community, your country, et cetera, that don't require actually going out and running for office. I think sometimes a lot of people think that that's the biggest way to make a change. But I know from my work in journalism that a lot of people who make some of the biggest changes in our country are either totally behind the scenes operators or people who simply help steer the ship of state for the people who uh, you know, are in elected office themselves. But I would say if people are looking at running, you know, make sure you're all in. You don't want to, you know, you, you can't, you know, this is a thing you can't really take back once you start doing it, right? So if you have a solid support group with your family and friends, then, and you think that you can win and would do a good job, it's something to definitely strongly consider if not, if you don't, even if you don't ultimately end up, you know, taking the plunge of doing it yourself. Yeah. Running for office or working, you know, in a, in a significant level in a campaign is just the best, at least from my perspective, like the best education you can get in how all this works. That's you know, right. I'm sure I, I'll, I'll call a little bit of an audible here on, on question number three, but I, yeah. I, I suspect that this, you know, do, does, does having run for office make you a better journalist as you're writing about these things, just, I mean, I assume it gives you a deeper understanding of, of politics. It's just hard to have if you haven't operated at that level on the inside. What do you think about that, Matt? So I think, <clears throat> yes, but I think you don't have to have run for office to be a good journalist. I think that part of what makes me a good journalist is that I have basically zero formal training in journalism outside of high school, actually outside of my journalism 101 in high school. I do have zero formal training in journalism. And instead, what I have is, you know, now multiple, like several cycles of uh, working at the highest levels of statewide, of US House super PACs, things like that, that give me a totally different perspective when I sit down to um, do my journalism. So I think the, the main way that my journalism has changed after my campaign was I realized that it is very difficult to be a Republican candidate or elected official or conservative 
entity and get a fair shake of from from journalism uh and the way i've sort of shifted my journalism from before and after my campaign was before what i would do is i would point out tons of problems and i would want to but i usually would not with my editors i would they would quibble with me about this i would try and um put in like the you know sort of problems in the biden administration for example but then i wouldn't really ever have the opportunity to write about the solutions that you know republicans or conservatives are proposing or advocating for now i'm you know pretty adamant about every time i'm pointing out a problem i want to also be trying and pointing out a solution to that problem uh which probably doesn't sound like a big distinction to a lot of your listeners but i think the way i would sum that up is that i've been trying to give republicans and conservatives voices in my journalism whereas before there was it was just like pointing out problems with liberal governance or democratic candidates and campaigns and things like that so that i think is the way it shifted my coverage but i think if i had never actually run for congress the experiences i had at the house republican super PAC at uh you know the governor's campaign in illinois i worked on in 2018 these sorts of things already gave me the different lens that i approach my journalism with which is much more political much more campaign oriented and things like that than you know what i think is sort of standard boring journalism and especially it is frustrating to me as a republican to see the massive amount of sway that liberal outlets and journalists have in our own party so i'm trying to be able to fill a void in the conservative media sphere and in the media sphere in general of okay what are republicans doing so i've been doing things a bunch of different stories for example about uh legislation the house republican majority has been passing to you know force biden to declare that the coronavirus pandemic is over for example things like that that i think would be much harder to get a fair shake from liberal journalists on. yeah Talking with investigative reporter and former congressional candidate Matthew Foldy here on our Six Questions podcast. Question number four, you've written a lot about China. Chinese spy balloons are uh, sucking up all the oxygen right. <laughs> in the media, the media world at the moment, uh, or at least a lot of it. Um, what, do you, what do you make of all this and our increasingly volatile relationship with China? So I think that... Um... Chinese spy balloon is almost a trap that this specifically that the Biden administration has fallen into. They shot it down, declared victory. You know, Dark Brandon is awesome, things like that. But you know, Mitt Romney and other, I think maybe even some Democrats made the very obvious point that if you have TikTok on your phone, that's like a Chinese spy balloon following you around everywhere you go. So I'm I'm concerned that the Chinese spy balloon saga will lead to us having a very false sense of security um, about our success in handling this uh, challenge posed by China. But one thing, so I, I think the spy balloon is horrible and, you know, we should not be spiking a football after we let it, you know, float across our entire country, our military installations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's also a very small part of the big picture. So I want to actually dive deep into this for one yeah. second. Yeah. And I think about this with basically every kind of topic that I'm covering. What I'm lucky in my journalism to be able to do is I can write about basically whatever I think is important, 
which is almost everything. <laughs> um, but when I see and, and various topics I'm covering, whether it's corruption in the Biden administration to green energy to sports, even uh, and obviously foreign policy, China will pop up in almost every single one of these. And just with those topics, which I, are varied, I just want to give you guys a sense of some of the reporting I've done to show how China fits in to everything. I think that you know, obviously, Republicans and Democrats have ideological differences, but at the end of the day, we have way more in common with each other than we do with China. So the way China permeates everything is, you know, corruption in the Biden administration. I was, I think, still the only reporter to talk about, to write about, uh, which led to congressional investigations in the last Congress. Um, the financial relationships that the Secretary of Commerce's husband has with a Chinese-funded AI company that he is the chief people officer at, whether it's Sports, I just wrote about how um, China's new foreign minister gave his first public address at a Washington Wizards NBA game. This is insane. I think that I'm working on having a congressional office write to the NBA to figure out what the financial arrangements going on there are. Um, green energy, obviously, our supply chain is almost entirely dependent on China, which has eaten our lunch when it comes to dominating the global supply of critical earth minerals. Um, and then obviously when it comes to foreign policy, China is everywhere. You know, look at Afghanistan, China's there trying to take all our things, whether it's dealing with China, obviously China is there. So really, whether you care about privacy, the environment, um, sports, anything, China is there. So what do I make of the situation and our increasingly volatile relationship? I think that, you know, I'm hardened uh that there is this bipartisan select committee on china in the house i think that i'd like to be wrong here but i think this will be addressing some of the more surface level problems as opposed to some of the deeper problems because i think confronting for example china's role in the uh green energy supply chain is something that undermines the entire point of the green energy movement which is you know theoretically clean energy but it's all being mined by China in like some of the most environmentally noxious ways in world history. Um, I think that I was talking about this with one of the House Republican offices on this this week. And the first thing to do is make sure that the American people are aware. You know, we're seeing um, increasing awareness that TikTok is Chinese spyware. I think we're seeing that way more now. It's very possible we might actually ban this. I think that's also just, you know, sort of window dressing, but would be a very important move to do this. And the other main point that we see this with their business dealings in Africa, but also in America, that any gift or any contract or any whatever with China is never going to be worth it. They will always stab you in the back. There will either be fine print that they can point to, or they're just going to do it anyway. And so I would be very, we should be very suspect of anything with them, you know, and our global supply chain being reliant on them, you know, we had two years of coronavirus and PPEs being made in China. We should we should learn from this and realize that we can't, you know, be dependent on them to the way that we are now. And that'll that'll require a lot of really a, a full country effort of moving things back here, moving things to different allies and hopefully moving them back here after. But we have to be clear out about this. It's by far the biggest threat we're facing right now. Yeah. So uh, question number five, another set of issues, domestic issues. Yeah. Obviously, at Save Our States, we defend the Electoral College. That's our primary mission. 
And it's it's a tough sell with young Americans who are often just reflexively opposed to, you know, not just the Electoral College, but things like the filibuster, you know, sometimes they certainly don't like the Supreme Court when it's perceived as, you know, doing things that, that they don't like. How do we make the case to young Americans that these constitutional structures are valid and really essential to the perpetuation of our country? I think that, I mean, this is my my sense. I don't deal with this as deeply, obviously, anywhere near that level as you guys. I think that there's probably some frustration with the Electoral College, driven in part by the 2016 election the Democrats lost. Um, I don't know. You know, I think there's definitely, right, they, they probably like it a lot more after Biden won. Um, but the filibuster, I think, is, you know, something that they definitely, you know, have multi-million dollar ad campaigns against, even though this is a thing that normal people don't care about. Uh, I think a lot of the you know, <laughs> battles in D.C. are over things that people don't care about in their normal lives. You know, a lot of the speakers race uh, mm-hmm. stuff. There was some chaos, obviously, last month with uh, getting the ultimate obvious result that was always going to happen to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And his detractors were fighting for changes that, for the most part, I don't think anyone outside of Congress cares about in the slightest. And I think that the left's fixation on things like abolishing the filibuster and abolishing the Electoral College have no bearing in reality with things that any normal person is concerned about. Now, how do we get them to appreciate these things? You know, that's why obviously you guys are around. I think this is, uh, you know, another sort of nerd answer, but I think that one of the biggest and most effective ways of having basically all age and all racial and all any demographics look at our founding era positively was, of course, Hamilton, which I love. I think that it was probably the first time that that history was really cool since Schoolhouse Rock. I I don't know if Schoolhouse Rock is cool. I thought it was cool. But again, I'm a huge nerd. Um, So being able to explain how things that, you know, seem like they happen so far away are actually still incredibly relevant today in cool ways. Like maybe you guys could, you know, roll out the next musical on, on the Electoral College. But I think that explaining why this exists, because, you know, let's be honest, this is not a system that makes sense if you were you know, constructing a new country. All right, you know, you're going to vote for someone who votes for someone who votes for someone. But there is a ton of wisdom that, you know, we don't necessarily get because we were not in that crazy era of founding our country. And I think that part of being conservative is acknowledging that you don't know everything. I wish that more journalists would do this. But then again, most are not conservative. So looking at why was this created? And what is the wisdom of keeping this going forward. I think that because it's something that is so unique to America, you know, it is incumbent on defenders of it to explain why this still has relevance. This, this goes with the electoral college. This goes with the filibuster. This goes with a lot of these procedures that, um, you know, people don't normally think about. And I, I was thinking about this from a Maryland perspective, you know, obviously they're pushing the national popular vote compact. I think that they would, very quickly stop pushing that when they realize that once they kick in the threshold, right, of of 270 electoral votes, 
that when a Republican wins the popular vote, they are also going to be winning the 10 electoral votes here in Maryland. I think they'll very quickly think, actually, you know what, let's let's go back to the Electoral College. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 funny. So much of the national popular vote campaign is intertwined with this sort of progressive dogma that their success is inevitable. Correct. Which I I thought was fascinating ever since I was a college student and I heard Roy Texera from I think he was yeah. in Brooklyn at the time. Yeah. Making that case, which he's now basically recanted, you know, post uh post Trump and and uh just you know given the electoral realities of places like Florida and and uh uh South Texas. But it's but it yeah, I mean there there is this this fascination on the left with the idea that you know, demographics is destiny. And, you know, if they just can, can dismantle, you know, whatever in the constitution is holding them back, they're going to succeed for sure, which is, so, you know, is the, the very opposite of the humility that you described as, as being so important. Uh, so let's wrap if, it if up. They realize, always, to that point, if yeah. they realize that yeah. Republicans can and will win the national yeah. popular vote again, their yeah. entire movement will, will very quickly disappear. Which, I mean, the last midterm showed, you know, at least in a midterm election, that 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 is uh, is entirely entirely possible. So, am I off base here in saying that? I just feel like this kind of undermines their entire goal, which is, I mean, this is unfortunately the goal of much of the left, which is to basically make it illegal for Republicans to win elections. Yeah. Is there no recognition, you know, in what you deal with with them? Of, oh, hey, like maybe. We will. Right. I mean, the point is, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if the Republican wins a uh, if let's say the national popular vote compact kicks in with just Democratic states, right, that that consistently vote Democratic on a presidential election and a Republican wins the popular vote, they will have a Reagan-esque landslide in the Electoral College. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. That's exactly right. And and there's actually I was talking last week with a Democratic uh, state legislator in Minnesota who he did recognize that and he does oppose the National Popular Vote Compact on, you know, basically those grounds. Uh, right. the, the crazy thing is, you know, the, the folks who the folks who push it concoct all of these different counterfactual scenarios and sort of answer one with another, even though they don't correspond with each other. Uh, which to me suggests, you know, I, I think there is just an agenda to break down checks and balances, which I think comes from an assumption that, you know, it's it's kind of Rousseau, right? Man is born free, but it's everywhere in chains. It's like at some point, if we break enough of it apart, then our side will always win. And I, I think you've got folks on the progressive side who really they really believe that uh, even, you know, even if there's wrinkles along the way, or even if it kind of goes against what you just see in, in, uh, in, in real life. I mean, progressives have never let, you know, <laughs> have never let reality get in the way. Right. No, that's true. And I think that, you know, an, an easy way to explain why the national popular vote compact is bad to the left, because I think this would be awesome is if it's implemented in certain ways, right. With, you know, the trigger of whenever it's just Democrats doing this. And that means that California's electoral votes are going to you know, President Ron DeSantis, I think that that will very quickly eliminate, my, you know, California, New York, uh, New Jersey, um, you know, these these states are now, they will be casting their electoral votes for the Republican. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on it. Which, I, which I think you, that would be awesome to be clear. I, great. Yeah. I'd love for California to, you know, send its electoral votes to Republican. I, I'm not deluded and I don't think that will unfortunately happen, you know, in this next decade and beyond. But that's that's kind of a pretty big flaw in 
they're thinking that it, right. that goes back to that hubris of, well, we can never lose the popular vote. And I think probably all of this goes back to 2000, where they were like, all right, we need yeah. to be able to change the system because we can't win within the system. And you see that happening with a lot of the voting laws that they're putting forward. You saw this, how they would gerrymander incredibly successfully this past cycle, you know, things like that. Of If we can't win within the system, we're going to just change the system. Well, and, and I think there's, I, I do think there's a, there's at least a segment of folks on the left who, and I, I think you see this out of 2000, you certainly saw it in Hillary's campaign where it's not just that we can't win within the system. It's that we don't, the things that they would have to do to win within the system, right? The things that, the compromises that Al Gore would have had to make to hold on to West Virginia or to win Tennessee, right? Or the things that, you know, the people Hillary Clinton would have had to rub shoulders with, you know, to win in 2016 weren't in San Francisco, right? They were, you know, they were in rural Wisconsin and small towns in Michigan. And I mean, I, I my sense is that there are folks on the Democrat side who, they just, you know, that's distasteful to them, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to make that kind of compromise uh, to build a, a big nationwide coalition. Yeah, because for their side, they really could win with, you know, the coasts and some, you know, a handful of big cities in the middle. I do think, you know, one one quibble with the Electoral College that I think is, is valid is for you in Oklahoma and me in Maryland. We, in essence, don't need to vote for president because it doesn't matter. And I, I'm just so used to this that... You know, I can't imagine my vote mattering. And I remember in 2012, the Romney campaign did a couple of events here. And someone asked, you know, what what's the point even of us voting for you for president against Obama, not in the primary? And they said, well, look, you know, obviously we're not going to win Maryland. But, you know, every vote that we get here does contribute to our to our popular vote total. But that's a completely meaningless total. You know, I don't I don't <clears throat> there's no perfect system. And I am, of course, just you know, reconcile with the fact that very rarely will I, as a Maryland Republican, have an opportunity to cast a vote for anything that matters. But that's, you know, every every system has drawbacks. Yeah. But I think that's one that that's that's, I think, really, of all the criticisms of the Electoral College, I think that is the only one I think that has any real uh, merit. to Yeah. It. And as you say, I mean, it just, you know, when you live in a state like Maryland or a state like Oklahoma, or I used to live in California, yeah. It's just like up and down the ballot, right? You know, these things are, uh, you know, for the most part in the short term, sort of preordained. Uh, yeah. But they do change the long run, right? You know, which is Maryland exactly the problem that state for a long time. <laughs> What's that? Which is exactly the problem that they'll run into with, you know, trying to abolish the electoral colleges. You know, right now they might be confident that, you know, Joe Biden will somehow win a plural or a majority popular vote in 2024. But at some point, you know, American politics is very pendulumaic. Yeah. It's not always guaranteed. Yeah, that's right. Well, the last question for our first time guests is always the same here on our Six Questions podcast, and that is, yeah. Matthew Foley, who is your favorite founding father and why? So I want to, I, I love this question. Um, in my journalism, I hate covering the same things that everyone covers. I like yeah. looking at the massive swath of things that no one covers. So in the spirit of that, I'm going to answer this question with a somewhat non-binding answer because I don't think that he is actually my favorite founding father, but I will not, I don't want to pass up an opportunity to tout one of Maryland's own, which is Charles Carroll. Yeah. Has anyone 
Has anyone no shot him up? Never, no one has never, I think, even uttered the name Charles Carroll on six questions. So I'm glad that you are. Uh, right, because I, I think that I kind of think for a question like this, if I just say George Washington, like that, that doesn't contribute anything to the conversation. So the reason I want to inform your listeners about Charles Carroll, if uh, they go to the U.S. Capitol, he's one of the two statues of um, in Maryland, in Statuary Hall from Maryland. So Charles Carroll, of course, is not on any of our dollars. He's not on the founding father's shirt that I'm wearing right now. But what's cool about him is, and I think there are a lot of lessons that you can learn from him. He's the namesake of Carroll County, which is the neighboring county, one of the neighboring counties for me right here. And uh, what he did, he was one of the signatories, of course. Uh, and what he did, so he was loaded, okay, right? He was massively wealthy and uh, he was also Catholic. He was one of, he's, I think, the only Catholic to actually sign the Declaration of Independence, which is cool. Maryland obviously has huge Catholic uh roots in its history. And uh, what he did was he wrote Charles Carroll on the Declaration of Independence. And then there were a ton of Charles Carrolls at the time. It's like John Smith. So someone, I think the the legend is they were motivated by anti-Catholic prejudice. They said, well, you're not actually risking anything, right? Because, you know, when you were signing the Declaration of Independence, you were committing treason against King George. And there are a million Charles Carrolls. So, you know, you issue a warrant for, right? That's why John Hancock was, you know, wrote his big, uh, you know, so then he wrote Charles Carroll and then he walked back and then added of Carrollton. So it was like, come at me. And I think yeah. that, you know, that, that spirit of bravery obviously animated everyone who did sign the declaration of independence, because if, if we didn't win, they'd all be, you know, publicly executed. But I think that sort of is the spirit that I think is awesome in Maryland. You know, we have the most pride in our state flag, of course, of, of anyone. And, you know, we are all very proud of, being from here. So that to me, I think, while he might, I wouldn't say legally binding, I wouldn't call him my favorite founding father. I do want to shout him out to uh, an audience that is probably not that familiar with uh, his legacy. Yeah. And, and it, it is hard to appreciate today how radical it was at the time to have a an overwhelmingly Protestant country with Catholics operating at that level in politics and commerce. And I mean, you know, that, that was, that was a truly, you know, just for all the Protestant sects to get along was, you know, was hard to do, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the fact that Charles Carroll was there and involved uh, is, you know, I think a huge testament to the beginnings of our, of our country. So yeah, great, uh, great answer. Wonderful to talk to you. Yes. How can folks continue to follow your writing and your work? Well, you know, like every journalist, I, I'm on Twitter. So just follow me on Twitter. That's that's usually the main main way. Send me I my, my I'm probably the most successful journalist. It's it's very frustrating to me uh, in, in doing journalism, how, you know, normal people are totally not able to. Access journalists at times, you know, a lot of people from around the country, I've done tons of stories in Indiana, I'm working on one in California right now, where it's people who have tried, you know, reaching out to their local outlets and been ignored or or, or didn't even know where to find them or whatever. They just shoot me a DM. And then, you know, in one case, the guy who DM me in Indiana is now a school board member because of the things that he flagged for me in his school district um, that I was then the person to report on after he said, you know, the Indianapolis Star turned him down, local ABC, whatever affiliates wouldn't even answer his emails. He DM me and we help change his community. So I think journalism at its finest can still do a lot of good. 
Um, and so if anyone has, you know, ways that they want to change their community that will lead to them running for school board or president, you know, uh, or as we said earlier, not running for anything and just, you know, working to help make sure that our elected officials govern responsibly, you can always hit me up. Outstanding. Well, uh, Matt, thank you so much for being a guest on Six Questions. Of course. And thanks to all of you for watching or listening. We will uh, be back with uh, another episode I believe next week, although we are running all across the country, I hope you'll stay in touch with us through SaveOurStates.com or on Twitter or Facebook. We are working hard to defend the Electoral College in places like St. Paul, Minnesota and Lansing, Michigan and Augusta, Maryland and all around the country. Uh, there are a lot of national popular vote bills pending right now, but we will keep you up to date on all of those if you are a part of our networks on social media or if you go to saveourstates.com, sign up for our email list. Until next time, for Save Our States, I'm Trent England.